This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by Starlight, the board game. Kickstarter launches this March 17th. Check out starlightboardgame.com for more details. Attention, citizens. It's time for Super Pulp Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. We have so much to talk about today. Um, I'm here with Justin Curry, also known as Chasing Artwork Online, and our producer, Dan Vatabonker. I realize I didn't introduce you as long-suffering. I feel like maybe yeah. we've grown as people. Yeah. Maybe you look maybe so excited. Maybe today. you're the one suffering today. <laughs> Actually, today <laughs> You're I the suffering, suffering. Yeah. host. Just- Today I did come in in a bit of a tizzy, um, but <laughs> I am quite excited at this that I'm looking at. Dear listener, maybe you don't know this about Justin, but he's kind of a big deal. He did all the art for a new board game that's about to launch on Kickstarter called Starlight. Starlight, yeah. yeah. You want to... Can I see this? Yeah, 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 check this out. So I'm just looking at this Starlight Games, I guess, uh, Instagram right now and seeing all your artwork on little game pieces. Oh my God. The figures oh, 3D wow, modeled that. and like there's game pieces that you designed. They're launching the Kickstarter on March 17th. March 17th, yeah. They, so I want to I want to gush about um, yeah, the team about of behind Starlight the game and just like the process of it because it was kind of like a dream come true as a freelance project. Um, when I was first approached to do a board game, um, like you can kind of tell from my portfolio that I. I'm a designer as well as an illustrator. And so as they were kind of pitching me the project of like, you know, you're going to do these card templates and the ship stuff. And I, in my mind, I thought, okay, I am like the only designer and only illustrator on this project. So I'm going to have to be doing all the graph design, all the pre-press, as well as the illustration. Big job. Right? Um, but no, it turns out they know what they're doing. And they had a designated graph designer who was taking all my illustrations and doing all the heavy lifting graph design work. Which meant you just it, got to develop assets. Which meant them. I just got to draw. It was amazing, and like he did. He, I should he, be noted um, for the for the like really skeptical listener that Starlight uh, Games has not paid us to promote this game in a positive light. This is really <laughs> our experience with it, right? Yeah. No, if I wasn't happy, we'd talk about a client. <laughs> and we'd leave names out of it. And we'd still talk about them. Yeah. Um, but no, it was it was great. And so they had a they had a three D artist attached to it. They had a, a designer, um, and then uh, Brendan. So the there's guy. a pipeline already in yes, place. And yeah. you just got to make art and drop it in there. Mm-hmm. Now, for the dear listener who's not sure, uh, sort of what we're talking about as far as pipelines or graphic design or like what the job of an illustrator is, why don't you break down what you thought you had to do more specifically versus what you got to do that made you so excited. So like, for example, the box art, the box art was a project that in my mind was, okay, I need to do a, uh, a scene that's going to be the front of the box and then it's going to need the logo. And then on the sides, we're going to need like kind of a breakdown of like this. And on the back, we need, you know, shots of the actual board game. We'll need all these photos. We'll need all this information. Like, there's a lot of elements that are going to have to be implemented. And so you thought you'd be interfacing the photography elements of the game with the back copy, with the box copy, with the, all there's, that stuff. There's going to be like 100 plus elements that all need to be 
put onto this box in a in a nice looking way right. um and then you have to think about how it's going to be printed and the size and yeah. all that and then i'm on the phone with with brendan the the gentleman who hired me and He's just like, no, we, we just want you to draw it. Just draw the picture. And Dan I'm like, just but, Googled the box art. <laughs> right? Oh my God. And yeah. so that's not actually the original box oh, okay. art. I did a different scene for the box art. Yeah. I did that one earlier and we just liked that one so much. It ended up being the box art and the actual box art illustration will end up somewhere else. That's cool. so rad. Yeah. Okay. So you didn't have to do. So when you originally said yes your belief was that you were signing on to do graphic design and illustration two things that you have a lot of experience in and then you discovered that they already had that pipeline well, I, th I think most clients don't understand the difference the difference yeah, yeah. so that because i i kind of had a handle on both they'd want me to be doing both right. like, like i was kind of a package deal that way right so it was really refreshing and allowed me to concentrate on the illustrations far more than usual at what point in the negotiation did that become clear and then you didn't want to like you know because there's a moment in every negotiation where you might have to pass on the job yeah that would be the moment where i'd be like oh my god i'd even lower my price to just <laughs> not have those headaches yeah. right like did you have that moment i think like as we were kind of we had a a we would periodically have phone calls throughout the project just to talk things out as well as we had, you know, like all the email correspondence and stuff. Um, we never talked about any of the graph design and it was never explained what anything would like the fact that none of those details were being passed on to me made Coming me up realize in your itemized that, list. Yeah. Like yeah. that I didn't have to worry about them. Oh. Was it one of those things where you just, you didn't ask in case <laughs> they'd be like, Oh yeah, you could do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no. No. Um, at what point did you realize that they weren't just going to talk about making a product, that they were going to scale it up and make, you know, like chips and cards and a board and a, and they, a 3D print? From day one, they talked about doing exactly what they did. Right. Um, and this is, a, this is a company that's done stuff like this before. They're not... Uh, not to this scale, but they've done successful Kickstarters and they've done successful board games before. Right. So they weren't, this wasn't their first rodeo, which I think is also why they knew to set up this pipeline of an illustrator, designer, 3D artist and right. have like, you know, not one person doing everything. And they had a game mechanic already in place. So that's the so other kind of funny thing. I have that. no clue what the game <laughs> works like. Like people have asked like, what kind of game is this? Like, I have no clue. It looks fun though. <laughs> The mechanics were it never looks explained. Really good. Yeah. Um, and I never really asked. Like I, I'm, I play board games. Munchkin is probably as complex as I get. I don't right. get into like the really in depth board right. games. And this looks like one of those like, you have to be into board games to dedicate the time to getting into this game. See, on the surface, for me, it looks like a like you manage your resources, you have your team of like spaceships, and you're raiding your friends for their stuff. See, this game is probably more for you. You already yeah, understand I, more than I do. I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, and that's kind of, you, you have a background in that kind of yeah. stuff, yeah. right? Um, I'm just sorry, just Googling around, and I found this uh, piece, I guess, one of the game developers posted this so it's on reddit a scene from the opening act of my upcoming cooperative game starlight and it's got your your image That's here me, yeah and then uh just a comment love this art style check out the artist on instagram instagram.com oh, giving you some love some, some it's there. almost like when you enter into an agreement with a reputable group of people that they'll 
share and support. It's a, it's a great thing for like your portfolio to have something like this. Right? Yes. It's different from anything else you've yeah. ever done. And it's just a great piece in that. Um, now, I don't suppose you can sell copies of this game at your booth eventually, or is that not? You know, no? like I'm, I'm sure later in, like I'd love, like, I love the idea. Um, I don't want, you know, 50, I don't want to buy into the print run and right, have right, 100 right. boxes here. But if I'm going to be, say, at like San Diego or New York and these guys are going to be there too, I'd love to do some yeah. kind of cross Because you could sign the box. You could yeah, do that. yeah, yeah, and yeah. We'll, we'll definitely talk about that. Like um, one of the things that uh, we talked about in the contract was all the, the, like the artwork scenes that I did, they're going to allow me to sell those as prints at nice. conventions. Nice. And they were super excited about them. I think their only stipulation was, we want some too. Like, <laughs> sign some and send us some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so like, it's a great crossover. For yeah, sure. great client to work with. And, you know, like they hired me for me. They right. wanted me to do my thing, what I'm good at. They didn't want me to adhere to like this style of board game or that style of artwork. And it made me think to like earlier projects in my career where like I was pigeonholed into like we want you to draw like the last guy who drew for right. us like why yeah. don't why doesn't it look the same concept design kind of gets you in that trap sometimes mm-hmm. Admiral, we have enemy ships in sector 47 it's a trap now i should also mention to the dear listener that it will create this rift in the studio that uh uh, Justin has gotten to one of my bucket list things sooner by accident than I have <laughs> by design. I'm also working on developing a, a box role-playing game for the tabletop. And then suddenly Justin gets this call like, hey, do you want to do this thing? And suddenly these like mass, this amazing mass-produced game is suddenly happening. So I could uh, if he introduce dis- you. I can maybe get yeah, you. <laughs> yeah, but if, he, if an accident should befall him, um, Curry's, I just want you to know that I had nothing to do with it. Uh-huh. And my burning jealousy was not a motivation um, one thing I want to say is that and I'm just looking at their Kickstarter page right now and I've done I did a Kickstarter for FanQuest to launch it and I, I realize now that I kind of did it poorly we did reach our goal but it was it was touch and go there for for a minute but these guys are really organized about the Kickstarter like to hire you to have all that concept art all not just concept art but finished art done before they even launched the Kickstarter like there's so much here that you can see that we is... We still have... It's uh, when 17th, March yeah. 17th. So, so it's still like a couple days out, but they are so prepared. Well, it seems very obvious that as a company, their model is similar to ours, direct-to-consumer. Right. Right, And Kickstarter gives them that ability mm-hmm. to have a direct-to-consumer model that covers all of their base costs. Basically, yeah, it's basically they've got everything ready to go. They're just, they just want the money to cover production. Yeah. And it's like a pre-sale, basically. They yeah. want to pre-sell the game to however many people, and that's all there is to it. I think now, the, uh, important here, I think, for the dear listener who's wondering, does that mean Justin doesn't get paid till the end? No. No. He, no. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. Yeah, you contracted. Uh, we don't have to talk figures or anything, but you... They paid you for your work up front. They didn't say, oh, if it gets funded or, oh, if it works yeah, out. Yeah. yeah. The other amazing thing about this was, uh, like, they contacted me. We discussed uh, rates. And timeline-wise, I explained, like, my business. Like, I, I am traveling from conventions. I think we originally started talking around September. And I was very clear, like, I, I really want to work on this project, but I want to be able to, like, concentrate on it. So if we can start from like October until February, like then I don't have guy. conventions yeah. yet. So you get me yeah. then. But like if we try to start now, I'm like home for three days and I'm gone for four days right. and then I'm home for four days and like it's nuts. So they were very... And they accommodated that schedule. But also they were planning that far ahead. Right. Wow. And they really thought about it. Easy setup and tear down. Like they've got an easy... 
they thought about everything. These guys are really like I know we're like kind of praising them a lot here, but it's really okay, I've seen a lot of these things and they've really thought about to all say these for different... the person that's listening and like why we're so you know like we actually don't know them personally. We only know no. them through this business yeah. relationship. But if what you're trying to do is create confidence in a person's ability to deliver a product yeah, yeah. through a, a through a third party website like you know Indiegogo or Kickstarter, this is clearly the way to do it. It's got all three of us. Convinced you, you that they'll you did all these through. ships and everything. Of course, it's yeah, artwork. these are awesome. Yeah. <laughs> right, no, but ships. like all that like design, they they've got like nice little um, text boxes behind them with nice nice little headers. Like that's the kind of stuff I thought I was going right, to be doing right. as well, right? Which you know you can is, do, and you I have can done, do, but it takes a lot of time. But no, they were just like build the cool looking ships and move on to yeah a cool looking ship. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah, I know. that is awesome. And uh, they made these things little pieces, these ships little yeah, pieces? Yeah, so they, I designed, there's player ships, so there's four player ships, which, you know, you take, um, and then they had a 3D artist uh, 3D print them, so there's like little actual physical 3D printed ships for your game board. Oh, and then the dudes? characters yeah. as well, yeah. I could paint those guys too. Yeah. I don't know if that's just because it's a, um, you know, if they're they're not going to come painted, or probably not, hey? You know, well, you know, hardcore board game people, they, they like do. painting they do their own thing. Yeah. So. Oh, look at you, and there you are right there. Hey, there I am. Yeah. Well, that's an old picture. <laughs> <laughs> look at this whole team, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. No, Who's great. the graph designer? Let's give... Uh, designer yeah, Jonathan Thwaites. Jonathan Thwaites. Okay, yeah. Jonathan. Woo. Shout out. You've yeah. done a great job. And then 3D modeler Nicholas Hain, Hein, yeah. H-E-I-N. So that's awesome. Oh, there's now, another. Is Dan Hughes is another graphic designer. He had more than one graphic oh, designer. Man. Wow. That's, okay, that's so if so any pretty. of you graphic designers have been mistreated by this company and you need somebody to out, <laughs> oh, uh, I just sent my free vector to files. God, <gasps> you sent your vector files. My to vector them? files. I do not use Adobe Illustrator the way it was intended. So I'm always really curious as to what a normal designer thinks when of my f- mess when yeah, they open that. It looks like like. It's a madman's <laughs> cupboard is yeah. each of those files. But they, you know, they print great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they print great. Okay, so you had this great sort of experience with you being hired for you and then also, people recognizing that. Um, good to note, we're both kind of in a situation where we have enough, we know how, where to find projects and we have enough projects coming our way that we can be a little pickier. Yeah. And this particular project came at a time when there was three or four projects on my desk that could've I could have yeah, yeah. could have gone with. So this was in all things being equal, it was the most fun. So it was you the got most to do it. fun and um, just talking like I think one of the main things was my first thing is to get them to do a bit of research on their end for me, right? Like what do you want me to do? I need like a bit more details. Yeah. And they came back with like, well we have a full thing, but we need you to sign an NDA and then we've got a whole like story for the world and we've got all this stuff and that right there was like a green light of like okay these guys are legit they know what they're doing and they have a lot of material ready for me it's not just they're making it up as they go along for a new listener just starting out nda just a non-disclosure agreement meaning that you sign it to say that i promise not to release any of the proprietary ideas that i'm being hired to work on even if i don't do them you asked about like starlight like earlier on like a couple months ago on the podcast and i was not i was i was quiet about it just because we weren't at the stage yet things were still developing and trapped but now we want to shout it from the rooftops because they're great um, have you ever had an experience that was the opposite of this, where you were hired not for you? Yes. Oh my God. This, uh, I was thinking about this, like while this project was finishing up was, 
um, early in my career, like before I was the chasing artwork company, when I was still working in uh, video games, um, I finished up a book project and I was a hired illustrator. I wasn't... So this was a freelance on the side. This was a freelance okay. on the side. Um, there was a writer involved. I was hired as the illustrator and the designer, right? Like, so not only did I do all the illustrations for the kids' book, I put all the, the words in. I did that page of copyright. I did the back matter about us and all that stuff. And I designed a cover and it was all ready to print. I'd printed books before, so I knew how to like lay everything out. And then the, um, the writer who owned the project, who had paid me for my time, found a publisher. And so the publisher contacted me wanting my files. And I'm like, okay, we've got the print ready book, ready to go. Like, I'm excited to see this. And we've talked about this before. Part of this, um, part of the print was I was going to buy a couple hundred copies to have at my table at shows to sell, to promote the book. Like, I was happy with what we did. And this publisher came back and she goes, oh, no, 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 no. I have to finish the book. I have some work to do on it. I need all your native, like, and she didn't want the native files. She didn't want the illustrator files. She didn't want the Photoshop files. She wanted flattened JPEGs because she needed to put it back together in publisher so she could do her work. Oh my goodness. And so alarm bells started going off. In a 1990s program, she wanted to reorganize your book. So at this point, I also started looking up this publishing company and previous work they had done. Um, This was not, this was what do you call vanity press. This woman had access to, her husband was did something in the printing industry, and so she had access to a printer, but she was not a graph designer. She was not a, a publisher. She was just... She wasn't hiring those people to do it, right? Yeah, she, she, was, she was untrained, and it was clear by her other design projects on her publishing site that she, had, she was not a designer. I phoned the writer and said, like, I, I think this woman doesn't know what she's doing. I don't want to hand over my files. Like, we have a finished book that's ready to print. Why are we doing more work? Why are we, like, redoing a bunch of work over again? Um, now, did you have a moment? I think it's important mm-hmm. to dwell on. Did you have a moment where you thought, maybe they're right? Maybe the book isn't up to snuff maybe they have to fix some things maybe i'm a junior designer and they have more experience like did you have a moment where you just said like you know they're the publisher maybe they know better no (laughs) i i'd had a half hour conversation with this woman and i tried to talk shop and she did not like she didn't understand rgb and cmyk she did not understand crop marks or bleed she didn't know what indesign really was no she hated indesign she didn't like using it publisher was what she knew right um she didn't know the difference between illustrator and photoshop like it was very clear like i'm sure she's a nice person but this this was not her forte so it came down to this publisher had signed contracts with the writer i had no say over anything so i had to hand over my files and the end product became something that i couldn't associate myself with so i had to phone the writer and have this conversation they went, remember when I was going to buy a couple hundred books? Well, now I'm not because I can't be right. involved anymore. Yeah. Take did, my name off. Did they take your name off of it? No. They, uh, she did try to have it very, very small. Like <laughs> the cover had three different fonts. It had colored bars that were like, you know, 
um, when you pick word, you know how flourishes. Oh my they had god, some flourishes! Oh, that's so nice. Like it was just a nightmare. I I still keep it around as like a horror story to tell at graph design seminars <laughs> and my talks. Around, You're gonna scare your kids at night when you have kids to to go to bed. It's, but a better else you'll be paired with a bad publisher. <laughs> it's my example of like why. Publishers need to be vetted. You can't just go with the first person. The illustrious Jabber bids you welcome and will gladly pay you the reward of 25,000. You know, you know. 50,000, no less. Eventually, the writer sued this publisher for her rights back because oh, the publisher didn't do anything they were supposed to. And then you guys produced and together. And then we reprinted the same file. <laughs> That I had in the first place, and I bought a couple hundred. I, we no printed five hundred books, yeah. and then I printed another because we sold out. So we've we've reprinted it. It's on its second printing already. Nice. My goodness. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. I ranted long enough. No, but that, that's a, it. Was a good lesson for you early yeah, on, right? I get fired up while so, thinking about that project. Now, do you think you appreciate the relationship of working on Starlight more oh, as God, a result? Yes, I think you need a couple projects like that to know to know the red flags of people like this publisher as well. Why didn't you feel ashamed and then give up? Which I kind of did. I which, said I'm I'm washing my hands of this and I'm getting away. And then the writer eventually came back like months later and says like This is going horribly. What can we do? I'm like I know. I called it. <laughs> Why didn't we listen to me? <laughs> so if you need a thorough, I told you so. Work with Justin <laughs> with this shady publisher. But what I mean is you went on and did other things. You didn't let yourself be crushed by what was, you know, on the this, surface, this a cool opportunity. be the reason Cassie and Tonk happened was like, oh, I can do this way better right. than a publisher can. That's true. Interesting. Because we talked, we commiserated about that story when we yeah. first sat down, yeah. When you've had similar situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We've had similar situations. Um, oh, man. Yeah. Right now, I'm just uh, struggling. To, like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, at the top of the podcast, I believe they say in radio. Um, <laughs> say at the top of the hour. Uh, top of the hour. Well, whatever it is. It's been a lot of hours. I'm on the finish line of both a prose novel with illustrations and a graphic novel. Uh, um What's and if I ever say to you that I can, that I should for sure have both of those deadlines happen in the same like month span, uh, slap me in the mouth. Yeah, right? what's it's a like bad the idea. the like the finish line of those two projects look like? Is we're very familiar with what the graphic novel finish line looks like, but with an actual written novel, I imagine it's very different. It's different it, conceptually. So when you're working, when I'm working, I shouldn't say you because like I work a little bit differently because I tend to do the writing the illustration and the colors on books that I'm writing I do that all myself and that's often a number of people's jobs but I tend to do that all myself so my drafts when I'm turning my graphic novel drafts into publishers or into editors are sort of these globs of story that are held together by um, the thumbnails of the unillustrated pages. And so the editor sees what I'm planning, sees the illustrations I've done together. I tend not to illustrate in order, right? Mm -hmm. I'll do like some from the beginning, some from the end, some from the middle. It helps me stay even. Um, I'm a little bit spastic when it comes to my art style and that I will 
change between projects a little bit. And so in order to, to spread that evenness out in a graphic novel, if I start a little in all the areas, the uh, reader isn't like jarred by a sudden change in the art style, right? right? So the graphic novel finish line really has to do with the print deadline is set, the time it'll take you to do the artwork is set, and then you can make some small substantive changes to the writing because the art takes the most time. So you try to pivot around not making too many changes to the art. With Good Boys, unfortunately, um, we realized, uh, my editor and I realized that, and uh, I can name her because she's basically saving the book. <laughs> Jennifer Lum here has come in and really uh, illustrated to me what is missing in what I thought my story was and how I could get there. So we've sort of taken the whole thing apart and put it back together. Not a typical finish line for me. Mm -hmm. Usually the finish line is 90% of the art is done. The last 10% I'll fix with the writing fixes with my editor. In this case, a lot more work and brain power and fear and, <laughs> and sadness and frustration. Because I thought my finish line for the graphic novel would be like the original one, change 10%, fix the words, no problem. I stacked it up on top of my book deadline mm. for the novel that I've finished, Automatic Age, that has also got illustrations and some design elements. And that was perhaps in error. I can say in mm. retrospect that my belief that I had it all figured out, that's built out of a little bit of experience and a little bit of ego. And you have to maybe think about which one is leading. Um, when you do a book project, and we've had Sambico in previous episodes talk about this, and we've had Claire Marshall on talking about that, there is a step where the book is sort of finished, and there's a little bit of time once the ARC, the advanced reader copies, go out for you to pivot a small amount. But a novel, if you change, in my experience anyway, if you change a paragraph or a character in a novel at, on page one, you have to change every instance that refers to that character or situation for the next hundred pages. Cascading right? changes. There's a cascading effect. If I change how a character looks who appears in panel one of a graphic novel and page 10, panel two of another on another page and then somewhere else, it's okay. actually a small change to change the look of that character. Adding a mustache. Right? That, <laughs> or a hat or a clothing change or like, for example, because we've moved some pages around in the order they appear in, in Good Boys, had to change the clothes of the characters, things like that. Yeah. Those are not huge changes in a graphic novel. I understand. But if you change a metaphor in a novel and all of the things that you as a writer have put in that point to that metaphor you got to scrub it all out to make a change or, or and so oh, if your editor, um, if your editor on that story uh, isn't, doesn't see the same thing, it can be, it can lead to some frustration. A lot frustration. of command F and like scrubbing through. Yes, less so. For me, it was more to do with um, uh, explaining. So automatic age is genre and the publisher doesn't publish a lot of genre and in science fiction, okay, so the, I'm trying to, like I've overall had a very positive experience with Great Plains publication, so I don't want it to, I don't want it to cast shade on the book itself. It's been awesome. I'm really excited. But for me, where my frustration has been is that 
Um, I want the reader of the story to ask certain questions that I have not provided the answer to. I've specifically created a place in the story where you will say, well, if the world is perfect, what are these humans fighting over? How could this dad be the veteran of a war? I thought they lived in a perfect utopia. Mm -hmm. That's the question you're supposed to ask. Yeah. I don't want to give you that answer. That's for you to figure out. Yeah. What? Right? You got to figure well, that out. That's the juxtaposition that's so exciting. Like, all the answers. Where did the Iron Giant come from? And right. like, why was he built for war? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You so don't, don't want that answer because <laughs> it's going to ruin things. So genre tends to create these mystery boxes as their own thing. Like, and, I, and I'm realizing, and I'm speaking with my wife who is a much, uh, she's very well read. She reads all over the map. She was the quickest one to point out. She's like, that's just a, a way that science fiction deals with things right it's a style of writing you don't know what the bill here bill what is it called the belgerian jihad in dune is they just refer to it you know that it happened oh, yeah okay right mm. and they fought all the robots and it happened but we don't know why it's just sets up the MacGuffin that there are no thinking machines people do all the work that robots used to do right, right. in the dune books yes right mm. there are no computers there are people who think like computers it's just a way to have it, right? So that the metaphor can extend for what... We don't talk about the event. That's right. We reference the event, but we don't talk about yeah, the event. Yeah, that's a very common right? thing. You see it a lot. And a common, yeah. a common bit of feedback uh, along the way working with Great Plains about um, automatic age was, well, you didn't explain this. Well, you didn't explain that. You didn't explain... You know, like, it was... It was clear to me that the publisher was used to a certain style of storytelling and that mine was different than what they were used to. And they told me when we got together, like, we're taking a chance here. So, like, it was all on the table, like every mm -hmm. piece. Well, don't look at me, pal. I just said you were a fair pilot. I didn't know they were looking for somebody to lead this crazy attack. I'm surprised they didn't ask you to do it. Well, who says they didn't, but I ain't crazy. The pressure of... The deadline of a, your book going to print is one thing. The pressure of another book going to print that you also screwed up on, <laughs> on top of that, has created this lens where I'm looking through my choices at the book underneath, maybe not in the healthiest way all the time, right? Because you need to, when you're making a decision like, okay, I'm going to make an edit, I'm going to cut this out, or I'm going to put this back in, you want to be clear-headed and sort of free of doubt and sometimes I found myself carrying the doubt of the deadline of good boys into the editing oh. process of automatic age or the, and I, I was having a great time writing automatic age. Sometimes I was taking the overconfidence I had that it was a good story into the editing process it's of overlapping good boys. emotions and between my, these two yeah, projects. Yeah, okay. That overlapping emotion in these two deadlines was something that I've not dealt with before to this degree. Because up until now, if I ha I've had overlapping deadlines. It's almost like a, a personal lot. event affecting your work. Yeah. Well, and I've had overlapping deadlines a lot. That's basically where I live, is in mm. a world of overlapping deadlines. <laughs> but when... It sounds so stressful. Right? But when my deadline is related to your project, my emotional distance is much greater. Yeah. So I'm able to hear that's not right, change it for me under these conditions is how we want it. No problem. I can hear that all day long from mm -hmm. 10 different people when it wasn't my idea. Yeah. I'm helping to get their idea the way they want it. Those overlapping things have, don't affect me. 
I just like, I can whistle my way through uh, an email of changes. But when all those changes were, there's no other way to put it, my fault in all cases, right? Yeah. Whether they were good or bad, that press of that emotional lens, I was uh, not prepared for this past month. And then mm -hmm. I was also doing the internship, or not internship, pardon me, the writer in residency, which actually was, I think, the saving grace. Being able to see everyone else terrified about how their manuscript looked <laughs> allowed me to be like, okay, yeah, just relax. You're just writing, right? Writing is, uh, publishing is the byproduct of writing, mm -hmm. right? Write for the right reasons. Get your, let your emotions run wild if they must, but, you know, you only have so many hours. You only have so many days. So that deadline piece is very different. Like, really, the end of a book is easier than the end of a graphic novel as far as your emotional mm. connection all things being equal but doing them both at the same time has created this kind of doppler effect that i was not quite ready for so when i said i came in right and i was a little bit frazzled because i'd gotten some things about how the cover was and normally it would just be like oh the cover's not how i envisioned it authors don't normally get too much say in how the cover is laid out, except I had done those illustrative elements myself, so I wanted them a certain way, laid out a certain way. If I hadn't also spent all a late night doing Good Boys revisions, I probably would have been smooth about the whole thing, but instead but, it rattled me in a way that I wasn't used to. Okay. If we're in the truth talk, which is what really this podcast now, is about. You, you have input talking about the idea of being both an illustrator and a designer, it's not your job to design that cover, right? It's their job to do it. Somebody else did it, but you have input in over it or how does that? So normally if you're an author, you don't, it, if a publisher is polite, they let you in on the design process, but you don't really have a say. They right. can override you. That's okay. their, that's their purview. In this particular instance, I had contracted to do the cover illustrations Right. It, just the illustrations, though, not just the, the illustrations, and that the overall book design would go to another person. Just and firm. An aside. How many writers were upset when their fantasy novels came out, and there's a bunch of characters that never and oh. creatures that never show up <laughs> so often. in their book, or the characters don't look anything like what they described not even in the close, book? No. Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, you know, and that's. That's a common problem because you don't have time to read every novel that you're doing the cover design for, right? Mm -hmm. right? And Or old VHS covers as well. There's always this epic painting of like, you know, Deathstalker. And there's all this stuff that never happens in the movie, it on the film. It doesn't look as good in the movie. No. I always love it. My favorite is when you see the, the font of the title of the film. Is in a, it, it's in a different font in the film as opposed to on the box. So somebody, like, it looks better on the box almost always. But it's the, the they've not kind of worked together. Does too. it cover for both, for like a movie and a, a novel? Does the cover get done first? And I then, don't know. Or is it last? I, I think a movie might be different. Oh, man. It's kind of all over. It's a degree, not a category. So, like, right. if you're doing a low-budget film, yeah, a, that's lot what of, a lot of that design work is probably done early because it's the concept work that you're also right. using to sell. And you don't have the budget to hire people over and over and over to do yeah. redesigns. So you just use what you got, <laughs> right? In a big-budget film, once they have test audiences, of course, or yeah, even yeah. a mid-budget, even, like, into that $10 million, $20 million range, there's a test audience, there's feedback, you have enough room to hire a better designer than maybe you started with. And so yeah. you'll see some of that iteration yeah. go on. Hmm. Um, right. 
Uh, and again, when I'm in those scenarios, God, I don't sweat notes or changes or whatever because it's somebody else's vision that you're helping to bring right. onto the page. So you gotta gotta make those changes. I'm doing um, some concept work also in the middle of all this other stuff, which has actually been a nice, uh, in a way, break for a uh, for a musical project that has pages of a graphic novel that are going with a musical element. And that person sends very clear notes for what they want changed and why. And it's, those don't stress me out the same way that a note from an editor about something that was completely my idea might need to be changed because, Mm. and when you're the one sending changes, do you find you're, you get stressed out about eliciting this kind of response to the person you're giving the changes to? Like, am I asking quite like it, Am I asking too much of this person? And like, yes, yeah. I literally when Dan walked through the door today, I was on the phone. I was on the phone because I didn't want to send an email that would. There's no way that it wouldn't sound like I'm an asshole mm-hmm. <laughs> because it was a list of things I wanted done a certain way. And when you make an email that is a list of things you want done a certain way and you won't accept anything but that thing you always come across like an asshole. Yeah, you can't convey tone. In so instead, like that. I, e- I emailed saying, I have a list of things that I think when I send it, I'm going to come across as an asshole. Could I call you so that you hear my tone? And you know, yeah. and so I did that. And that's what I was, that was a conversation I was having about yeah. some changes that needed to be made that I wanted done a certain way. And the reason being, it was the same as you. I'm going to have a, you know, I'm going to have a thousand copies of this thing over the next 24 months pass through my hands i want to love it mm-hmm. yeah. i don't want to look at it and every time i touch it be like oh i wish i had it represents your it. brand yeah. yeah you need to need to make sure it's on brand yeah which is uh you know can be tricky so we can't all have starlight all the time no, no. kidding right um who did not sponsor this podcast but <laughs> is a game now are we gonna we should do a maybe a podcast episode where we play the game well, great. Fun, actually yeah. let me put another way where i win the game uh-huh. when is it okay so the kickstarter is actually I just looked at the page so when is it set for delivery when is this going to be actually made i'm not sure okay i'll just look at the page um i am going to be doing there, a big uh he did his part he's done post, with it yeah, yeah um, oh, june, on all my june 2021 so next year yeah. So basically, they're looking to, yeah, they got to produce it. They got to print everything and cut. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's not just a, a printed board game. There's 3D pieces. Yeah, there's pieces and all um, kinds of stuff. Like custom I would love dye. To see there's one of my favorite YouTube channels is Beer and Board Games. And they play oh, yeah. exactly what they says. They play board games and drink beer. And I love to see them play this game. They play all kinds of games like this, like super kind of, I'm not saying it's complicated, but intricate is a better word for it. Yeah. Like just kind of cool uh, role playing space games like this get your board game done so we can go to gen con and i'll come along yeah, yeah, yeah. to hang out with uh, starlight guys well i've been prototyping things so yeah, yeah. we're ready and uh, the big thing is that every time we do a play test one of the things i do is i switch i take the notes from the play test um and switch the setting for the next play test to see if it to make sure carries. that it drives it's really easy for those of you who are into uh, tabletop role-playing design uh, it's really easy to make a specific rule change Right. Like, so, for example, if it's a fantasy world and you want um, plate mail to always be more protection than chain mail, making that specific in world rules adjustment, that's easy, really. Mm -hmm. But now it's sci fi. But if you're yeah, if you're trying to create a system that works on the basis of storytelling that can switch genres whenever the players feel like it. Right. 
those kinds of rules actually are the antithesis of that kind of gaming because you need to be way more fluid and you don't want to have that much um the only way to have that attention to detail is to have lots of charts and lots of books that keep track of all that stuff a litigious game is mm -hmm. not the kind of thing we're designing keep your distance though chewy but don't look like you're trying to keep your distance i don't know fly casual now can i ask you a question um based on the, since we're talking about test playing your game have you ever run a session in which you were not the game master yes okay i have participated in a few and we are uh, i've set up a few for this coming year where i will be a player while someone else is Good. running a number yeah. of sessions that's a great because I, I know that like you're excellent at running these games right. uh, by now, oh, well, but thank you. well, I've only done one of them. But um, but at the same time, you need to see how other people are going to handle this Absolutely and, and work true, with yeah. it, right? So that's yeah. a very important part. And a of good it. test for me has been watching my kids run elements of it with each other oh, okay. and their friends. Yeah, you know, they don't know that I'm watching, but I'm always watching. <laughs> Right, a little camera um, up in the corner, and the trick is if a eight-year-old or a ten-year-old, uh, I guess nine and eleven now, mm. um, can explain to their friends what is expected in the rules and still have fun, and a forty-year-old can explain it to a group of thirty-year-olds and they're also having the same fun with the same rules. That's how I feel. You know, you're onto something that works, mm -hmm. right? Cool. Um, yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Now you're also Dan not exempt from this not. iteration and creation you are essentially pitching a new podcast yes right can i talk about it i think you shouldn't talk about the details of it but you can talk about the generalities of it how about this i'm gonna ask you some questions okay and you answer them okay uh you've done <laughs> podcasting for a long time yeah. How many years have you been? Well, a since 2011. Um, that's just when I'm, my my friend Kenton and I started meeting nerds for fun. We did it out of, out of the college. We had the equipment there anyway, um, so we just started talking about movies, TV shows, all that fun stuff every week. And you've done? You mean maybe now in the thousands of episodes? No, 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 no. Because uh, um, we 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 would take the summers off. We didn't always do it every week. Meeting nerds were up to 230 something episodes, 235 or six right. episodes, mm -hmm. and then Star Wars nerds we've done. Hundred and something episodes, and we've done 110 episodes, yeah. roughly, of Super Pulp Science. Yes, so I've done at least 500 episodes of, okay. of podcasting. So, plus, I teach my students about it. I have my students all produce podcasts. I've been like kind of immersing myself in this world for almost a decade now. So it's taken you um, a long time, I think, to even self-identify as a content creator, as an artist. Yeah, uh, I don't think of myself as an artist. Content creator, yes. Artist, no. I don't think of it as an art necessarily. But you're creating an experience that somebody sure. consumes and can return to in order to feel a certain set of emotions. Is that art? Yes. Okay. I think so. <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, as long as there isn't a chemical stimulant involved, right. I yeah, believe. Okay. You know, because you can <laughs> you can revisit cocaine for a certain set of uh, emotional no, rides. Involved in that. A stimulant is or, or, or drugs is what got Kevin Smith uh, Tusk. That's right. Oh my god. <laughs> that, that was oh a god. movie that was born out of a podcast because he was really high when he recorded that podcast. So, and I'm sure a lot of people who were really high when they listened to it encouraged him to do that. <laughs> it was really not a great idea. Anyway, it's so but you come elements. to a place where. <laughs> The thing that you're doing because you love it. I mean, and we've said many times, if you won't do it for free, yeah, right, you'll yeah, never yeah, get yeah. paid to do yeah, it. Exactly. Here you are um, in a position where someone has said, the thing you can do is of value. Yeah. Can you adjust from your own personal reasons to make podcasts and do this for someone else? 
tell me about what that feels like. Well, in it, your head. it helps that um, the subject matter of this is something that I'm interested in anyway. So yeah. I feel like it's a good fit. And I don't know, like it's going to be challenging. Actually, I've got another possible contract lined up with a different client that's not going to be necessarily something that I'm... That you don't think is... A, well, it's not that it's, I'm not, um, it's not that I don't know anything about it. It's just that I don't find it as interesting right. as, this, as this specific podcast uh, we're talking about. So that helps for, to be invested in it. Um, and so you're, you, know, you want to do it. Like I come here every week because I want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have fun hanging out with you guys and talking to you guys about stuff. So that's part of the, part of the fun of it. Now, um, getting paid helps, of course. You get paid for your work and, and that's good. Um, but I, I'm, I'm excited about this one, maybe not as excited about the other one coming up, but I'm going to try and make it work because I do want to make this a thing that I do going forward. I do want to be a podcast producer. Right. Now, the tough part of it is that very similar to um, social media marketing, everybody thinks they can do it. Everybody thinks they have like all you need is an iPhone and a, you know whatever to, to record a podcast. There are so many uh, blogs and videos out there that tell people that's all you need. And, and really there's a lot more to it than that. Um, but it's, and it's also not just about, um, the, the equipment you use, but what you talk about and how you structure that conversation and that kind of stuff. That's a big part of it as well. And that's what I feel I bring to the table here is my knowledge of like what works and what doesn't work as far as content goes, right? So it's like the difference between being a hockey fan and a hockey player, right? Right. You can, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Nice right. sports analogy. Thank you. Jeez. Yeah. Didn't expect I'm that. not just one thing, you know. Well, I know you don't like sports. No, but I like analogies. <laughs> Right. So yeah, so um, so I think that uh, it's, I'm really excited about this. It's going to be, we'll, we'll be again. We'll talk about it specifically when we get there, but it seems like it's going to be a great uh, kind of partnership and a great uh, project to work on. And yeah, I, I don't know. I can't really say much more. Again, I don't want to be vague about it, but I can't really right. say much more until we finalize some details. Let me ask you this then: that you won't have to be specific about anything. Right. Um, have you had a deep dive into? the time and energy it takes to produce a podcast that you like versus producing one that you might have to do for money. And it changes the relationship. The reason I bring this up is because I'm in this position right now, right? Where I have two books that I'm finishing that I'm putting in a lot more time and energy in than I need to. And there will never be a return from that time out of it. They're from publishers who did pay me, but everything extra beyond that, that's on me. And at the same time, I also had to take on client work that I have to produce. Yeah. So this this um, second podcast project that I mentioned is actually right now I'm actually blogging um, freelance for this company, and it's something that I can I, I write these blog posts about, and it's not like a regular thing. It's like whenever I it's pretty good actually. It's pretty flexible. Whenever I'm inspired to write a a blog post, I pitch the idea to them and they approve it. And then I go ahead and write it. And that's pretty much it. And it's just a, as a, as it comes basis. So I don't have a schedule to keep. I can write whenever I'm uh, free to do so. But I find that because the subject matter isn't as like in my wheelhouse as other stuff, I'm, I'm reluctant to get into that headspace. Was that a job just for the dear listeners? Like, hey, that sounds like a good gig. How do I get that? How did you get that? Was uh, it well, in, in a way, I get a lot of stuff come across my desk because I'm an instructor uh, at Red River College, and this one in particular, they were actually looking for students. And so, <gasps> no, I was not taking work. I did offer it to students. <laughs> I did offer it to students. I, I will absolutely say that. Um, 
I put it out there for students to to take them up on it. But I also said, if you're interested, I'm also somebody who could do this because I was looking to make some extra money at the time, right. and I still am, obviously. But um, but Aren't uh, we all? Well, we are. But uh, and and it really seemed like the the kind of stuff they wanted me to write about or wanted people to write about is not stuff that students have a lot of life experience with. Things like taxes and life Tax. problems and yeah. <laughs> Going to the dentist, no, right. not, just, not that. But but uh, things that like the students, um, the younger students anyway, wouldn't know a lot about uh, doing those things. Whereas an older person does have a bit more experience in that area. We failed a lot more. Exactly. And so I, what I did is I approached the older students in my program, so the students that are closer to our age, who to do this, and then a couple of them are writing for this client as oh, well. Oh, so you did get them work. Of course so you did. all did it. Yeah. So, so that, that's and that's why I've got like a bit of flexibility because they have multiple people writing for them, so they're good. They're good with content, right? But anyway, at some point, we are going to move this into the podcast stage. They want, do want to create a podcast as a, as a marketing tool for their business. So that's when it's going to be a bit of a challenge, I think, for me to... Because to, that's a lot more time-consuming. Writing a blog is is pretty straightforward for me. Like, I just get to kind of get it sorted in my head, write a brief outline, and then just vomit it out <laughs> onto the screen. No, that's what I do. That's what I write. I just, I just write it. And then I, I read it, I proofread it, I rewrite it, I do a couple passes on it, and that's it. It doesn't take me long to write a blog post. It takes me several hours to produce a podcast. I'm pretty sure there's a Farley Mowat quote that says, um, uh, people who say writing is easy are either lying or I hate them. <laughs> I well. So you are depends, one of those people where certain on, things come easily. That's just practice, discipline. You it, know what you're not, doing. It's not. It's all it is is don't be afraid to suck. Mm, that's right. my mantra mm. when it comes to writing. Just put it out there. Put whatever you're thinking out onto the page just to get it out there. And then you can rewrite. You can rewrite, revise. That's what I tell all the students. Don't be afraid. Because they sit there and they hem and haw. What am I going to write about? I don't know what to write about. You know what? And just, I just, just put something out there. It's taken a lot of time to get to what is probably obvious to the listener. My trepidations around these two book deadlines have everything to do with the fact that they are not for us specifically. Mm. I have other people who I'm trying to do right by in those projects, like two publishers have entrusted me, mm-hmm. right, and put in considerable time, money, and effort to produce work of mine that will they're going to get out into the world. When we make a book and we take it out ourselves on the road, it succeeds or fails based on our own grit. Right. And sometimes the idea is no good, but that's fine. We're going to make another one. And nobody is at risk. But every time I have to talk to another person whose job is tied up in producing my work, I get this little crumb of like, I don't know if it's not guilt is the wrong word, but like, like I owe it to that team apprehension to do it good enough for them rather than just good enough for me. And instead, I should, uh, yeah, I'm going to think about that well, deeply mm, over the next week. They hired you for you, right? They didn't right. just hire a writer. They hired a, they hired a GMB Kamicha. Yeah. I was due for an existential crisis, so All this right. is good. Yeah, yeah. good. yeah, this is good. Things were going too well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. Um, this has been Super Pulp Science, where we have talked about how genre gets made and specifically our relationship to the work that we make every day. So I'm encouraging you to get out there, make comics, write stories, design board games, produce podcasts, whatever you do, join the fight. And we'll talk to you next week.